Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Forrest. And this is The Crosscut, a podcast that contextualizes the news of the day with the story, themes, and motifs of a treasured... Or constructed? A, a DNA trash <laughs> piece of cinema? I was trying to think of like what we could say about how they like created people from uh, their like test tube sort of deal, you know? Yeah. Constructed. I don't know. Engineered. Engineered. That's a good one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Bio um, engineered. Bio engineered piece of cinema. There we go. GMO'd people. I mean, technically, all cinema is edited, right? So, much like you would edit the DNA that you are combining to create a baby, you are editing the DNA of the movie when you take it into the editing room. Yes. Yes. Here. That's our episode for today. Splicing genes like we splice 16 millimeter reels of. Film. You're you're shooting on sixteen. I don't know, man. Twenty four. Is that what the <laughs> what? norm? What? <laughs> I don't know, man. <laughs> I didn't go to film school. Yeah, okay. thirty five millimeter is what. Thirty five. Uh, yeah. Thank goodness. Okay. Now, if you're a Christopher Nolan, you shoot on seventy millimeter, but that's another story. That's a that's a different movie. That is Oppenheimer coming this summer to theaters near you. <laughs> I'm very excited. Anyway, uh, but today we're not talking about any of that. We're talking about Gattaca. Yeah. The 1997 film starring. Ethan Hawke, Uma mm. Thurman, mm-hmm. Jude Law. Got some uh, supporting cast in there from uh, Gore Vidal, of all people. Uh, <laughs> we had Tony Shalhoub show up for a half a minute. Yeah. Alan Arkin was in there. Uh, so, yeah, it's a, it's a very, very fun uh, movie that, like, absolutely has a place in time. <laughs> like, it's, like, very late 90s cast or, like, late 90s, early 2000s, like, just, Major just, Hollywood '90s all stars, yeah, for sure. That's right. I mean, it was all. It was only a matter of time before we would get around to this film, just based off of, again, it being one of those sci-fi near future films that mm-hmm. is br- very prophetic, very prophetic in its technology and the ethical questions that it asks, in the way that it. I mean, as we'll get into today, in the way that it very much predicts a lot of things that are coming up in our future. Mm -hmm. Not only that, though, Mm -hmm. (laughs) when we watched this movie, I was deep in the weeds searching for our next electric car because we were going to upgrade from a (laughs) plug-in hybrid to a fully electric car. And all of the cars in this movie, I mean, in the like, you know, present uh, of the movie, the present day of the movie, were electric. They were all, they were plug-in. And those cars have really great noises they make. <laughs> Similar to our Sim- new car, right? I mean, our, our car was designed by Hans Zimmer. The, the sound. The sound the was sound designed was... by Hans Zimmer. Uh, <laughs> so when you speed up, it sounds like you're in Interstellar. <laughs> yeah, very good. Uh, and also they have concentrated solar power. So they are generating electricity from renewables. Like this was 97 when they were talking about this stuff. It's very cool that this was like actually predictive of the future. Right. I mean, we have solar panels on our roof and we drive now a fully electric vehicle that we plug into our house. We are basically living in Gattaca. We're basically in Gattaca. And what we're going to talk about with the news story today is why maybe that's not great. Right. Well, <laughs> another know. way that I'm we're, assuming. I'm assuming. Uh, potentially not great. Yeah. Cool in the science, but uh, just given our track record of law and <laughs> ethics so far. It turns out that human beings can kind of screw up anything. So looking forward to see how we screw up this. Yes. Okay. Well, I guess we should just get into On it. On that note, let's get into it.
For over a decade, scientists have been refining a method of data collection that utilizes something called environmental DNA, also known as eDNA. A recent study has shown that there may be potential implications for this method beyond mere scientific research and rather into the world of forensic crime investigation. So here's my problem. Mm. eDNA sounds like email. Here's a bigger problem. Uh Search engines just read eDNA as anything having to do with a woman named Edna. Edna. Yeah. So you get a lot of (laughs) you get a lot of uh, Incredibles artwork. They said, guess what? SEO doesn't account for your weird capitalization (laughs) for your lowercase e capital D capital N capital A. It's all just Edna to us. So here's every story about a woman named Edna for the past 10 years. Darling, do you want a superhero suit design just for you? (laughs) Call Edna. By the way, the voice of Edna done by the director of that film, Brad Bird. Is that right? That's correct. Mm, nice job, Brad. <laughs> but I yeah. I gotta get that second paycheck. Uh, as I was going through and and researching for this podcast, I, I, I truly did come across many, many <laughs> news articles of Edna's big and small in this just, world. Just doing some things. <laughs> Different Edna's doing things. I, I, I kind of like that. I kind of like the idea of just like, as you were just randomly scrolling the internet, it's like, let's learn about some Edna's. Yeah, it's fine. that's right. That's right. So, but, but what about the Edna that we care about, which mm. is in fact the actual DNA that we find in the world? What, yeah. what is it? I, my, under, my, my guess is that we just leave DNA behind wherever we go? Well, not and just it, us. Okay. But but animals. Okay, cool. All living things which exist with carbon mm-hmm. and DNA yes. leave their DNA everywhere. Cool. Mm-hmm. I mean, our dog Indiana is definitely uh, exhibiting that every, every time she time, sheds. Every <laughs> time I vacuum the yes. house, <laughs> I am assaulted with how much of her DNA she leaves everywhere. Yes. Just everywhere uh yeah so so we are there there is dna all around us um in in our houses in rivers lakes streams oceans beaches everywhere that so you're animals, focusing on waters <laughs> water it, systems right now well i mean so a lot of the research has to do with water because the way that Poo. they that is part of it yeah okay. yeah, yeah um as scrubs would say Everything comes back to poo. Well, one of the ways that we actually saw eDNA being utilized by scientists was in late 2020 for COVID. They uh. would scientists would start. This was when um, this was when the CDC started um, actually monitoring uh, actually monitoring pathogens in our waterways. That they um, they developed the National Wastewater Surveillance System in late 2020, and they now collect data from more than 1,400 sampling sites distributed across 50 states, three territories, and 12 tribal communities. And the data cover about 138 million people, more than 40% of the U.S. population, basically monitoring for who is pooing COVID COVID, cells. Can we do that with other viruses and stuff? Can we expand that and be like, where does like the, who's like, where's going to get the flu next or whatever? I mean, yes, actually. So right now, COVID obviously has been the thing that we have worried about the most. And it was a way to track the prevalence of COVID, especially once people stopped going to the hospital because they were vaccinated. You're still going to shed the virus in your poop. 
um, and it's still going to show up in your waterway systems, even if you're no longer going to the doctor or no longer testing whether or not you are not positive for COVID. So now that we are especially, I think, uh, shutting down official surveillance of of COVID in a lot of ways. This is a way that we can continue to monitor both this yeah. and potential um, outbreaks of various pathogens in the future. Yeah, we're shutting down individual monitoring. So we're trying to move towards like a group monitoring to say like, hey, here's when things might get bad or whatever. Right, absolutely. And and not only, so, so I say water because one of the ways that you're able to actually utilize this DNA um, is by just taking I mean, like literally like a can or a cup or whatever Mm -hmm. and dipping dipping it into some water and then running it through a machine and seeing what shows up. Okay. What DNA comes out of it. All right. And what are they looking for in that DNA? They're just looking for, I mean, just like little snippets and strands. So the the scientists who are originally using, who were originally using this are looking for a variety of different things depending on what it is they're trying to track within the environment. So they've been able to do things like detect whether or not there are invasive species taking oh, over various areas. Um, that's cool. Yeah. Um, they're able to track um, vulnerable or secretive wildlife populations. So for instance, um, pollinators. Okay. All right. They're able to, uh, in in uh, the Southwest region of Western Australia, they were able to more effectively identify which insect species interacted with various flowers. And they were able to do that by like running the eDNA, finding out which pollinators DNAs were, were in there. Um, and then uh, I guess identify that more, uh, more closely than if they were to use like camera recordings and, and tracks That's and cool. stuff like that. Because what they're basically doing is identifying just enough DNA to identify species at a species level. Right. So not like, it's not so much like the individual or like whatever we're going to be able to find out from a specific entity. It's like, generally large groups of populations in an area. That's what they were using it for. Right, However, right. oh, right, we'll get into that. Hang we'll on. get into it. But um, there have been, there have been indications that individuals may also be identified hmm. as well. Um, so, so yeah, so monitoring things like that. Um, also there was even an instance where scientists were able to rediscover a species that they had thought to be extinct. Oh, that's neat. So there is a dinosaurs, uh, no, like a a fly. Damn it. (laughs) I was very excited for just a second. Troodon. Dinosaurs. (laughs) We found the DNA from a dinosaur. It was in a piece of amber, believe it or not. (laughs) Look, dream the impossible dream, you know? We'd be doing a different film. <laughs> you would be so excited. <laughs> Still very excited. We're going to do that film one day, I'm sure. Yeah. Folks, I, I truly have just been not talking to Forrest about what eDNA is That's for true, yeah. several weeks since we decided that we were going to do this. So he has not had any clue, which made uh, planning this episode out a little bit harder because yeah. he's been wanting to save it, for the, save it for the pod. That's true. And I think I was the one who stumbled on the the first news article in the New York mm-hmm. Times. And I was like, look at this and tell me if we could do Gattaca. <laughs> and you were like, actually, that's really good. We could uh-huh. definitely do that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, I think the headline is something like the, you know, scientists can now pull your DNA out of thin air. Yeah. So they rediscovered this insect in Wales. It's called the scarce yellow Sally stonefly. Okay. Uh, and it was it was last collected in 1995. Can I ask a question real quick? Yeah. 
was it called the scarce whatever fly? Yes, that's literally part of its oh, wow. name. Wow, appropriate naming. I was just like, <laughs> or, or was it just scarce because it, it was gone? Apparently yeah. there were a lot of different kinds of stone flies. Okay, and okay. this one was in only a few places and then only in like one place. And so hence the name scarce. Yeah, sure. And then, then no more. For, for <laughs> decades. And then in March of 2017, they rediscovered it uh, in a place called the River D. In, okay. uh, <laughs> these. These flies. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, they, they basically just like put on waders, went into the water, dipped a cup of water or dipped a cup in the water, brought it out. And they were able to basically basically identify yeah. the DNA of this fly that's an inch long and has not been seen for decades. I did. Where did you say that they found it? What, what In Wales. In Wales. All right. I, I was going to do an accent, but I don't know what a Welsh accent sounds like. It's probably, I mean, I know it a little bit from like the um, uh, Welcome to Wrexham, you know, mm. but I can't do it. Don't do it. And so don't I'm not try. going to. Don't try. But I, I, just, I do just imagine someone like going into the water and being like, have you, have you, do you guys see this? There's a fly. <laughs> I haven't seen this fly before. <laughs> We've got to check it out. Right. So so uh, as a final point on this, the reason that this is going to be helpful is because this is helping a lot of different scientists basically um, understand the impact of a lot of a host of different things from climate change to disease spread to habitat loss and other disturbances that um, we may have on various vulnerable species. But there are a lot of different applications for taking just random DNA yeah. out of the environment and analyzing it and coming up with all of the different species that are in a given area. Yeah. So you're saying that the the use of the eDNA is mm. potentially to evaluate the health of a species and then figure out ways that we can improve the health of that species over time. The presence of Much like <laughs> the movie Gattaca. I, I see where you're going, but I have to be accurate. I have to make a segue, baby. <laughs> Let me segue. <laughs> so, um, sure, sure. So in the film Gattaca. Uh-huh. Uh, it, so so uh, we can talk narrative for a second, but I also actually want to talk about the way they structured the story, which I really liked. Mm -hmm. Um the opening of the film over titles. First of all, people don't really do titles anymore, right? They don't do like, we're going to show you very slowly some things that are going on in the background and overlay the names of the actors, right? Right. Like people don't really do that as, as much as they should anymore. And it's a really great way to convey a lot of important information about the story without like just fully starting the movie. Yeah. And in this one, what they do really well is they're showing Ethan Hawke's um, like procedure, for getting rid of his DNA as much of it as he can. Right. Scrubbing his skin as much as he can, burning his old clothes, clipping his hair, like mm -hmm. getting rid of all the old hair. Sitting under a black light and just, you know, scrubbing as yep. hard as he can and then incinerating any bit of him. Yep. Clipping the nails, putting fake finger uh, coverings over his fingertips. That so have like little bits of blood Little bits of blood them. in them so they yeah. can do a, a finger prick. Yep. Yeah. It's interesting because, I mean, this always comes down to when we watch movies where it's something that happened in the past. If you watched this in the 90s, was this supposed to be people looking at this and going, ah, oh, I see what's happening here. Or was it supposed to be a true teaser where you're like, what the fuck is happening? I think here? it's like, what is going on right now? Yeah. I think it's very much like, I don't understand what is happening. Why uh -huh. are we burning things? Why is this guy so meticulous? Is he like OCD? Wait mm -hmm. a second, they're putting blood into a fake fingertip. That's weird. Right. And it does all of this stuff repeats later on in the movie yeah. in context. Right. So I think like out of context, it just seems weird. And, and I think that's useful because 
you're creating a new world, right? You're creating mm-hmm. a, a science fiction sort of space and you need to sort of move people outside of their comfort zone pretty quickly to establish this is not a normal space. Right, you're depositing people directly into the middle of the action and expecting them to catch up and yep. be intrigued. And it's incredibly useful because what they do after that is they enter into like like near future um, Ethan Hawke's character, uh, Vincent, as a kid mm-hmm. with his brother. And like, so apparently he was born... Uh, I think he was, he was referred to at some point as God's child, which means like he was just born the natural way. There are a lot of religious um, illusions in this film, which right. we can get into like in a Like ch- a child of God. Yeah. And he was like, <laughs> he said uh, he was born in, uh, in the Riviera, not the French Riviera, but like the back of a Buick Riviera. <laughs> which right, is, right. Or not born, but conceived. Um, and so like it, he was like, they had the ability to like look at people's DNA and match up the right things at this time, but it was still early on. So it's like not everyone had adopted that. He was one of the last sort of like natural born children. Mm-hmm. And as such, he sort of received a genetic deficiency in, in his heart. So they say. Right. Another way that this film is predicting the future, when I was pregnant with our first child, yep. I had my DNA tested. Yep, mine and too. We had your DNA tested, my DNA tested, and our son's DNA tested while he was still in utero yep. based off of just my blood, a sample of my blood. They were able to identify like my entire genetic code, his yep. entire genetic code, um, a potential genetic flaws that might mutate five generations down the mm-hmm. line that we should talk Keep to a geneticist yeah. about. Yeah, which was nothing. We're safe, folks. Um, but I'm going to just beep this out because I don't want any insurance providers to be like, oh, on your podcast, you talked about blah, blah, blah. It's like, y'all, can, y'all don't need to know anything. But they did, I mean, they did like a full genetic rundown based off of a very small, relatively small sample yeah. of my blood. And it, I mean, to the point that they were able to analyze the chromosomes of, of you know, our child. Yeah. Um, when I... I was only like 12 weeks pregnant, yeah, something, very, 10 very weeks pregnant. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, they knew the the sex long before any tests could reveal it. They knew the, the chromosomal breakdown long before any kind of like, you know, um, amniocentesis would yep. be able to identify. It, it's truly wild what they can do. Yeah. And, it, and it's interesting because it's like a lot of times, and we don't need to get into this fully right away, but it's like a lot of times this stuff is predictive of whether you want to continue the pregnancy or not because it's like oh it turns out your child is going to be born with a a genetic defect that is going to cause their life to end within three weeks like they're within hours after being born or or in utero or whatever yeah it's just and so it's like these kinds of tests provide information about whether you want to commit the next however many weeks of your life 30 40 whatever it is um to to carrying a child that may not go to term or that may die shortly thereafter. And so anyway, Mm. the point being, um, I will come back to that, that topic just in in a little bit as we get towards the end, (laughs) as we get towards the end of this, I just wanted to put a pin in it. Okay. Okay, We're going to put a pin in it. Speaking Um, of, of genetic analysis of infants in utero. And I want to talk about the genetics of a few other people uh, specifically Ethan Hawke, yeah. Uma Thurman, mm. and Jude Law, just the the best looking people. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the, they are basically the lead cast in this film. Um, and so uh, we we start out early on with the kids, right? Um, and we actually have a brief moment of overlap in this movie uh, between this one and our last one. So this movie, the dad of Vincent and his brother when they're young mm-hmm. is played by Elias Cotius. Mm-hmm. who in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles right, right. 1 movie <laughs> plays Casey Jones. So we did Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2 last week, or two weeks ago. This week we're doing Gattaca. He's kind of, you know, in both of them sort of. He's our through line. He's our through line. And so uh, they are, the, the kids are competitive as brothers are. The second child named Anton. Well, especially brothers where the parents clearly said the first child is not good enough, so we're going to go make a genetically altered second yeah. child that will replace you. And to be fair to those parents, like they were like, oh, we're just going to have a kid the natural way. It's totally fine. And then what happens as they try to get him into schools, try to get him into daycares, they're confronted with things that are like very predictive of how people in our current society would respond to this, which is like, oh, the insurance won't cover it to have a kid with this kind of genetic defect going to our school. So they get turned away from polite society or modern society in their time because of what they were able to pick up on a DNA scan or what they were able to assess this child being capable or incapable of doing. Well, you know, they lived in a pre-Obamacare war. This was written in a pre- Well, this was written in a pre-Obamacare world where you couldn't be denied health insurance because of pre-existing conditions. That's right. Yeah. So Obama, (laughs) we, we now live in a timeline where this could not happen- Unless, of course, somebody repeals Obamacare, which, you know. They're trying. Are they again? Aren't they always? I don't know. I think they stopped. I think they're just like, eh, we lost it because McCain gave the thumbs down that one See, time. that's what they want you to think. And then before be you know it, the fall of Roe. Sorry. Just... That already happened, though. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so uh, we we basically see the very early stages of this film are the the young lives. And so, so what I appreciated was mm. that in the title credits, we got present day where we're going to see all these characters and we get a little bit of like what's going to happen in the present day yeah then we get voiceover from ethan hawk talking about himself as a kid and he presents one thing that happens where he and his brother were swimming and he had to rescue his brother because his brother started to sink right and it was an indication that hey as we move forward into adulthood it may not be the case that he is hampered by this heart problem Right. He actually may be stronger than people are giving him credit for. So it creates the moral through line of the film very early on through kind of like flashback or historical perspective and voiceover. A lot of people hate voiceover. I think it was used incredibly effectively in this movie. I mean, I think that he does a good job. I I, I don't like voiceover when the person who is doing the voiceover is not good at it. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm I'm thinking of Bella Swan in all of the <laughs> Twilights. Uh, yes, that's correct. Now. Uh, since you mentioned Twilight, mm. I'm going to go ahead and bring up a little something that connects there. The director of this film and the writer of this film is this guy, Andrew Nichol. Okay. He, um, this was his uh, directorial debut. Okay. And since then, he has d- directed a few films that I think you'll know. Uh, this was in 1997. In 2002, he directed a movie called Simone, S and then 1, M and then O and then N, E. Right. Uh, the I mean, it was basically like AI or like early her, right? Kind of. Yes. It was like there was a public persona 
but that person was fake. It was basically mm-hmm. what happens on like Twitch now or TikTok every day. <laughs> it was in the same vein as like a wag the dog sort of situation. I think, I don't know. I never saw it. I know I had Al Pacino in it, but I, other than that, I got yeah. nothing. Um, after that, he directed Lord of War with Nicolas Cage. After that, he directed In Time. Do you remember that movie? Justin, Justin Timberlake. Timberlake. Very oh, good. Oh, yeah. oh, you know why? Because Justin cool Time. Justin Time, yeah. There every you go. time I saw the poster, that's all I could think. Yep. And then the reason I brought this up is because in 2013, he directed a little movie called The Host, which was co-written by Stephanie Meyer. Right. It was based off of, I think, her follow-up novel to the Twilight series. And you watched it and... I've watched it a bunch. Oh, no. (laughs) I mean, I've also watched Twilight, the Twilight series a bunch. I mean, I I get that, I guess, because it's like a thing in like popular culture, but nobody knows what the host... Like, why are you... Why would you watch that multiple times? Well, because after I finish watching the Twilight series, it's the next thing that's recommended by the the engine. And so I may as well finish it off with a little bit of the host dessert. You know who stars I'm, in that? I'm, I'm literally like choking on my own <laughs> spit right now. I don't... You know who stars in it? Uh, Shailene Woodley? I don't know. Uh, no, a little known actor at the time by the name of Saoirse Ronan. Oh, I do love her. She's great. She's good in this film. Get a paycheck, man. You would dislike the film, but she oh, does a fine job. Yeah. Although her accent is... Mm, uh, they had her doing a Southern accent and so, so here's the thing. The about, accent work was just not there for yeah. this film. So here's the, okay. Can I just brief aside? Yeah. Okay. Southern, depending on where you are in the South. Yeah. Like you can't go all Georgia with it. You can't get down here in your, in your, I'm going to have some sweet tea and molasses. Like the Georgia doesn't work with Southern accents and Irish accents. However, North Carolina, you can get up here in your voice and get real high in that tinny voice in North Carolina. That kind of that works really well with Irish accents because you got you because you got your R's. Yeah, R's are very hard in Irish. Uh, this right? was, I mean, but this was a an accent though that was very Southern Belle. If I remember. Mm, yeah, it's, so if you're doing debutante ball kind of shit, does not work. with Well, Irish. it's just yeah. somebody saying do a Southern accent and and the the vocal coach being like, here is. <laughs> a Here's a Southern accent everyone knows. Gone right. with the wind. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, you definitely don't want to go down that route. Right. You, so, you want to get kind of like grungy with it if you're going to be... It, like going from Irish to Southern, you got to go like the like the poverty Appalachian Mountain kind of like accent. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I'll be doing the rest of the, ox- of the, rest of the podcast in this accent if that's all right with you. Go for it. <laughs> no, actually. I dare you. I think <laughs> Oh, that's a problem for you now, because I will take you up on that. I take it back. Uh, I listen to a lot of Colin Farrell talking. He's a very handsome man, you know. You're getting more into like a Mrs. Doubtfire. Yeah, that's probably right. (laughs) Um, um, Yeah. You put your night Doubtfire, dear. It was a drive-by fruiting. (laughs) A run-by fruiting. Oh, is that that what it was? Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, uh, speaking of oceans... Yes, let's talk. Uh, so because of the swimming, they were swimming in the oceans and uh, the the younger, I'm sorry, yeah, uh, older Vincent saves his brother Anton from drowning. And we see that maybe his heart is not as bad as uh, we, we may have thought. Right. Well, OK, so I guess backing up, right, we know that uh, the older of the brother, the firstborn child of God, has a terminal, uh, probably terminal heart. He was defect. expected to be dead by like 33 or something. Yeah. 
Right. Which, I mean, you have all this technology. Why not have the technology to fix the heart defect? That's what I'm saying, man. But, I mean, whatever. So we're more concerned about isolating and and discriminating. We fix it by eliminating it before it happens. That's right. Right. Exactly. Um, And so they play this game of chicken where they just swim out as far as they can swim before somebody gets gets scared and then turns around. Where are the parents? Where are the parents? Where are all the people who should be monitoring this beach for children swimming out as far as they can swim? Yes. Great question. Well, speaking of monitoring beaches. Let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, another instance of eDNA in scientific research, before we get too far into it, there was a study that was conducted within the channels, the Channel Islands of Catalina. And basically, researchers collected ocean samples um, from 18 sites that were stretching all across these various different islands, and they extracted the DNA, and they identified a bunch of different things in the water, the uh, dead skin cells from animals, scales, other body parts, and they were able to basically uh, match DNA to all of these various different animals in the genetic library. And one of the things that they found, um, in addition to this just broad array of various different Animals, such as fish, sharks, rays, um, giant kelpfish, is that they found that there was white sea bass DNA in, uh, in, in basically all of the testing sites. Oh, wow. And so one of the reasons that that is significant is because white sea bass had great been for Top Chef. Historically, yes. I mean, <laughs> is great for Top Chef because it's been, but overfished, historically yeah. overfished. And actually, Top Chef has gotten a lot better about using sustainably sourced seafood. <laughs> you don't have to defend Padma. I got you. I guess <laughs> I'm just cool. like, I'm saying they don't use sea bass because <laughs> it is not an ethical form of fish. Fair enough. Uh, however, maybe now they will. <laughs> now they now they can grow back the sea bass uh, because eDNA showed that the that the sea bass is making a resurgence and it has been slowly recovering um, and providing evidence that um, their the comeback is actually more robust than than uh, scientists had previously thought oh, based good. off of this. Um, so so basically, you have this method of collecting eDNA that is doing all of these things that we had talked about before. Um, it it is basically, you know, providing a more comprehensive picture of the animals that are living in various different areas that are potentially difficult to study, which is like those sort of intertidal surf zones. Um, and and yeah, so it's it's doing a great thing. Now, a couple of the downsides to this is that um, is that the DNA doesn't really reveal anything about the health of the animal, right? Mm-hmm. So you sort of had mentioned that in your transition earlier, what it doesn't tell you is the animal's size, its age, its sex, any kind of like specific information about the animal. It also doesn't really tell you how much of a species is present. So while we know Mm. that there was sea bass DNA collected in these 18 different sites, what we don't know is how prevalent sea bass is within the ocean. Like as a percentage of the population of animals they collected, they don't know how much that would be. Of they know it's just whatever. present in all these places. Got it, got Could it. Could have okay. just been the same sea bass. It's just up one off. very, very <laughs> shetty sea bass. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Drop some scales over here, some scales over there. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, one of the, one of the potential good sides to, uh, good sides, upsides to this method is that uh, the, the process for collecting samples is incredible incredibly easy. Non-scientists like lifeguards and beachgoers can basically just stick a can in the water, pick up some water, send it to a lab to be analyzed. Um, And so because of that, you can 
you can get a lot better picture very easily. Nice. I think that's cool because, uh, I think a lot of the barrier to entry for testing something like this is like typically you'd go out and like you would do a quadrant of like the ocean and you would drop down nets and catch things and count right. them and or tag them or whatever and just be like what existed here and this is, it involves you going out in like multiple ships multiple times multiple crew like having to actually do the hard manual labor of counting stuff up and it may not be as accurate or as like use or as um you know, like, like specific as doing that, but to get just some general information right. as easily as possible is always a benefit. That's really cool. Right. Well, I mean, the, the sequencer that they use, uh, that they, that one of the sequencers that you can use as a scientist, and it's, we'll talk about this later on is a nanopore sequencer, which allows scientists to basically read these long stretches of DNA. Mm-hmm. It costs a thousand dollars, which is incredibly cheap. Yeah. It's about the size of a cigarette lighter. Should we get one? <laughs> I had the thought too. <laughs> For what? <laughs> I don't know. Um, Cassius, it's, hold on, hold still. <laughs> Sequencer DNA. Um, it's it's about the size of a cigarette lighter, and it plugs into a laptop like a flash drive. Neat. Now That's great. laptops no longer have USB ports. You got to get an adapter. We got a mm-hmm. USB C, but you got to go USB A to C to yeah. But it is a very easy portable technology that, I mean, you literally are just grabbing a can of water from the ocean, putting it into this highly portable, not very expensive piece of equipment and running DNA just to see what's there. Well, that's, that's great. Um, Do you know what else uh, DNA can be used for? What's that? Catching criminals. Uh, I don't know why I whispered that, but no, yeah. So, so in uh, in the film Gattaca, mm-hmm. Vincent grows up and he becomes what his DNA tells him he should be, which is basically a janitor. Right. But he's a janitor at a uh, facility that shoots off uh, basically spaceships into outer space every. He's working for SpaceX, essentially, folks. So okay, in the <laughs> in the IMDb trivia. Mm-hmm. They're like, obviously, SpaceX didn't exist when this movie came out, but the like the goal of SpaceX mm-hmm. is very similar to what they present in Gattaca. Yes. I'm just like, no, the goal of SpaceX is to siphon money from the federal government and put it in Elon Musk's pocket. So also to siphon money from other billionaires who want to go up into space and tour- be tourists. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, my my favorite thing um, that happened recently is mm-hmm. uh, Jeff Bezos. Put William Shatner, uh, Captain Kirk himself, on a, a ship and flew him to space mm-hmm. and then had him come back. And rather than be like, that was awesome, William Shatner says, I've never felt more divorced from humanity. I want nothing more than to protect the life that we have on Earth. Space is a cold, dead place, and it left me empty and feeling terrified. <laughs> and so I want to stay here for as long as I can. I'm like, hell yeah, William Shatner. Like, I, have yes. a, I have a buddy who drove William Shatner around in his, was his tour bus driver when he went around and did his spoken word oh, yeah, yeah. tour. Yep. Um, my, my buddy was uh, was his driver. And I like to imagine, uh, drove him around a, a better time than what he got up got in outer out, space. Yep, yep. Yeah. Spending just a billion dollars for a <laughs> trip to outer space thanks to Jeff Bezos. Yeah. Um, anyway, so... In the film, the uh, character Vincent, played by Tanaka, of course, uh, watching all this stuff go by, all the, the ships go into space, he himself has had this dream 
of doing deep space exploration. He, mm-hmm. I think he wants to go to Saturn, but I, I you know, it may be just, he just wants to do it. And I think then it he turns just wants out, to get as far away from Earth as he can. Yeah. And then it turns out Saturn is the opportunity he gets mm-hmm. because he finds a person who has the genetic makeup that he would need to be a, not just a janitor at this facility, but literally a, like, participant. An, an astronaut. An yeah, astronaut. he's got the genetic resume. That's right. And uh, and so he goes in, uh, Tony Shalhoub is the handler who introduces him to Jude Law's character, mm-hmm. um, a guy by the name of, hold on, let me pull up his full name, because I know his middle name is Eugene. Oh, his name is Jerome. That's right. But he goes by Eugene. Mm-hmm. What, oh, because of the word gene, like there genetics? Is. Yes. And so the uh, the name Eugene, hang on one second. I, I wanted took to me a, took me a second. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> You're I like looking to... at me like, do you get it? Yeah. Eugene Medics. Um, so Jude Law's character um, asked to be called by his middle name, Eugene. And the name Eugene comes from the Greek for well-born, uh, which he is, of course. So mm-hmm. uh, Eugene, um, the science, or uh, eugenics, Eugene, right? Eugenics comes from the science of improving the hereditary qualities of a race or breed, which is, of course, the central theme of the film, right? Mm -hmm. And we today have a pretty bad perspective on uh, eugenics because it was something that the Nazis were trying to do. Yeah. And so it's it's a nice comparison in this film to say like, oh yeah, maybe that's actually really bad. And another point that we we glossed over earlier, mm-hmm. but when Vincent was young and the parents were going to have a second child and they had their DNA sequenced and figured out which the best ones they could choose were, mm-hmm. who was the, who? do you remember who the actor was who played the geneticist? He was a very attractive black man from the 90s. Does I, that help? Well, okay. Um... I remember seeing him and being like, I know that person. Blair Underwood. That's right. Yes. And so the thing about that that I I wrote down in my notes was um, he said, uh, well, your your son uh, should be, uh, you know, well suited genetically, you know, um, fair skin. And he makes a face that's just like the look, "Mm." the look that he gives these white people Uh when he when he is basically shading them to their face about asking for a fair skinned child. Yep. Uh, is is something that I just I I feel like almost certainly he did on purpose mm-hmm. and not caught by anybody the, in the nineties. The question <laughs> the question was like, was it written that that would be the dynamic that the geneticist would be a black person who's athletic, handsome, just like a, a really like amazing specimen of the nineties, like hotness meter He might have even been like people's like hottest man of the year or whatever it was. Mm. Um, sexiest man alive, whatever it's called. Um, but like- Hotness I, man of the Hottest year. man of the year. You know, I, I read magazines. <laughs> I know what I'm talking about. Anyway, the, um, but like for him to, to, to put that out there and be like, oh, you think like a very specific way about what is appropriate, what is, what, like it's just a, such a nice little like moment of reflection that they that like you get to like I don't know I love it it's just a, a tiny little moment mm-hmm. that just says like this is what this leads to yeah. it's like these things aren't valuable because they're actually beneficial to a person they're valuable because that's where you place your value well I mean the parents are are the parents Italian uh, I mean Kotias is um, Jewish I don't know okay I mean they're not like 
Aryan, no. right? No. That and 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 the reason I say that is because it, it is significant to say we want you to select for the fairest genes. Yeah, we want we actually actively want the whiter genes. Yep when you're selecting the embryos mm-hmm. or, or whatever, right? Um, we we actively want you to select out, breed out any darker complexion yep. um, in in our, you know, perfect child. Yep, yep. Uh, and, and so I think for them to like do, like expose that the way they did with just a, a simple line. And again, I don't know if it was the writing or if it was literally Blair Underwood saying like, I'm just going to read the line this way. Yeah. Like, I don't know, but like, that's pretty great. No, but I mean, it's, it's, it is, it is interesting. It is um, something that they don't really get into too much. What would have been even more interesting is if they had cast somebody that was um a little bit more darker in complexion that I mean, sure, still sure, sure. is white. Right. But maybe potentially like ambiguously white or Put Tony Shalhoub in that role. Uh, yeah. Right. <laughs> um, I mean, Ethan Hawke is um, fantastic in this role, but he is not any less white than his brother. Who's his cast yeah, right, brother right, or right. Um, Jude law. Right. I, yeah. Ethan Hawke is only like, uh, genetically inferior when you put some him next to someone like Jude Law and have them styled differently. Like, that's the only thing. It's like... They very much were banking on the she's all that, that's you right. know, yep. um, dynamic with yeah. with Vincent or... No, what's... Is, is, no, no. Vincent is Ethan Hawke. With Vincent, yeah. yeah. They, were, they were definitely banking on the, the she's all that. Put some glasses on him. Yeah, put some glasses. <laughs> Must his hair off. Make his hair kind of messy. And yeah. it's like, no, he just looks artistic now. He's still very attractive. He's yeah. Ethan Hawke, for goodness yeah, sake. They made three movies about how he and one lady couldn't get over each other. Like, we... He, he literally fell in love with and had two children with his co-star in this movie. The guy is attractive. <laughs> right. Uh, but anyway, the um, speaking of which, mm. uh, Uma Thurman and Ethan Hawke met on this film, mm-hmm. uh, became a couple during the filming of the movie, and uh, got married the next year and had two children. They divorced in 2005, but whatever. Like Stranger Things have happened. Uh, is that a reference to... Oh, because Maya Hawke is in Stranger Things. I saw Maya Hawke uh, <laughs> recently in Asteroid City, Holy hell, she is her mother. She she looks like I mean, looks and acts like okay. her mother. Like it's it's uncanny and she's great in that movie. Like she um she plays a teacher and uh I think she did a great job, but like also like damn, she looks a lot like Uma Thurman. Okay. I mean, uh yes, also looks a lot like her father too. I mean, not in the, not in uh, Asteroid City, but Okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. I still need to see it. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, The other thing I wanted to mention is, so Vincent is taking over the life of Jude Law, uh, Eugene, uh, his character. Right. So he's basically trading, he's basically trading the life, right? Or or he's he's swapping in, tagging in for the the life of of Eugene, becoming Jerome. That's right. And so what they said, so he's going to be Jerome and then the former Jerome will only go by Eugene, just be a different person. Right. And so what they... um, said was that or what uh jerome the old jerome said mm. was that uh we can just call them jude and ethan sure so what jude law <laughs> says is like there's no gene for fate right stepped out in front of a car got hit by the car broke his spine is now paralyzed mm-hmm. so it doesn't matter what his genes say 
He just, uh, he can't be that, that stellar person anymore. He later goes on to divulge, like he'd gotten a silver medal in something. And like, he was distraught because he was, he was designed to be perfect and not right. ever get silver. And so he stepped out in front of a car on purpose and broke his own spine because, you know, depression, which I think is an interesting point mm-hmm. in the way that they presented it again, kind of quickly, this movie's not long, so they didn't delve into it too much. But the the way that they presented it was that this kind of system where you can pick and choose the winners and losers, right? Right. Has disadvantages and in fact, like morbidities for the winners as well, right? Mm-hmm. It's like if everybody gets to choose who's the winners and they all choose winners and those winners compete against each other, Still turns out there's only one winner. If everybody's special, nobody's special. That's right. If everybody is a winner, then everybody is a loser. That's right. Except for the literal one person. The one person who just happens to get lucky or whatever. Yeah. Right. I think what ends up happening in a society like this one, right, mm-hmm. is that you have something like the concert pianist who ends up having six fingers on each hand yep. and he's the only person who can do that. What happens is you just, your track is highly specific and specialized yeah. from, the, from the moment that you are conceived basically um you are michael phelps with short legs a long torso webbed feet and giant lung capacity right and it's like you don't necessarily get to find the thing you're passionate about you were designed to do a certain thing and so that's the thing you do it's not that you love it it's not that you have art artistry in your heart that you find and want to expand on it is that you were designed to do that thing. Right. The economy of the system or of this society just isn't fully borne out potentially at this yeah. point because you you know, you what you probably don't actually have, if this is the case, is somebody who has the freedom to be an Olympic world class swimmer yeah. and then turn around and be an astronaut. It's yeah. like, no, you are bred for a thing. Yeah, you're, it's like, you're that thing or you're nothing. You got six fingers on each hand. You're either going to be a pianist or you're going to punch people 20% harder. Your toes are <laughs> webbed together. We're not sending you to space. <laughs> <laughs> There's no water up there. You doof. <laughs> you're, in the, you're in the ocean. Um, yeah. So I, I think that it's, um, I, I just started reading that book, uh, The Sum of Us by Heather McGee. And she talks about like how much of the damage done by racism is not only to the sort of already understood uh, people who lose from racism, like black and brown people. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is also damaging to the people committing the racism, right? And so it's like, if you're the parents of Jude Law's character and you created him to be this like perfect person, but you've given him along with that these expectations right. that he's unable because of how life works to fulfill, you've also burdened him. You have You have tied a millstone to his legs and he is now being dragged down with that expectation. I think it's also touching on something that we see now with kids who are our age, with people who are our age, who were in the gifted mm-hmm. programs yep. when we were younger and they have these ultra high expectations. I mean, this is not something that you could have known in the nineties because I don't know that this was a phenomenon that had fully, um, revealed itself. Yeah. yeah. It had fully like come to fruition. But what we're seeing now is there are a lot of people who are millennials who were in the gifted and talented programs and had these ultra high expectations. They were told that they were special from yep. the time that they were very, very young. And then when they get older, they have this sort of fear of failure mm-hmm. that is almost paralyzing to a lot of people. And it, and it causes them to sort of crumble because they are not seeing their lives 
bear out in the way that they had always been told that they should. Yeah, totally. Now, I uh, I do want to mention a couple things about the movie and how it plays out. Okay. The first is, I just want to get like the, the basic plot. The yeah. So we have this setup, right? But the plot is um, really simple. It is a um, sort of like mystery, uh, like a murder mystery plot mm-hmm. combined with like a police detective, like a uh, private eye plot kind of deal. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is uh, Ethan Hawke has successfully fooled everybody, almost everybody. Uh, the person who conducts his interview uh, to become like a member of the space program or whatever, once he steals or borrows um, Jerome's identity, is actually played by Xander Berkeley, who was in another movie that we covered. He was the uh, foster father in T2. Oh, oh, okay. Wait, yeah. who was he in this? Xander Berkeley. He's the guy who always takes the urine sample. Oh, yeah. oh, hey, that's some versatility. There it is. I mean, that guy, he's hes actually a very good actor, a very good mm-hmm. character. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, Ethan Hawke's doing great. T- stole that personality, stole that person, yeah. persona. D- nobody knows until there's a murder of his boss at the facility. Somebody smacked him over the head with something. Right, who everybody hates. Everybody hates Well, him. not just smacked him over the head, but he was basically unrecognizable except for his yeah, DNA, him. basically. Yeah, gooshed him like a fly. Hmm. And, uh, and so they swept the area for DNA and happened to sweep up one of Ethan Hawke's uh, or Vincent's eyelashes, and that set off alarm bells. There was an what they call an invalid which is, I think, an interesting way of saying that because we do have the word invalid uh, in our modern lexicon. Right. And it's like to have that sort of crossover is kind of interesting to think about um, the just the etymology of that word. And that sets off alarm bells. And so Alan Alda plays the sort of police chief. And then the detective on the case is played by a guy, Lauren Dean, um, who is, we don't know anything about him other than he is looking for the criminal. Right. Well, okay. So speaking of uh, just sucking up eyelashes mm-hmm. out of uh, office buildings uh, and and using it to track down random people or yeah. specific people. Um, you know, I think that this is where we can start to talk about how is eDNA now being used or like what are the implications yeah. of it? So there was a, a study that was done by this, uh, the, by this doctor, um, Dr. Duffy. Acula. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I already made that joke on this podcast. Uh, oh. Dr. David Duffy, who is a wildlife geneticist at the University of Florida. And uh, he basically just wanted a better... Uh, so essentially, he just wanted um, a better way to track diseases in sea turtles. Sure. Uh-huh. And so he that's where he started using environmental DNA. And he was just finding all this extra human DNA sort of within what he was looking for. Like, he's like, I'm just trying to find turtle DNA. There's so much human DNA. It's basically just garbage to me. It's just, it's, it's scientific noise. Really, really quick. Yeah. You said university of Florida. Yeah. I got your back. Boo. Okay. (laughs) Just that's, that's for you. I got you. Um, and, and so, up until very recently, scientists basically just assumed that any kind of DNA that you find in the environment, be it from sea turtles or from humans, is not going to be uh, meaningful in yeah. any kind of way to identify individual human beings. Um, okay. Because, uh, you know, you just, you need, it's too degraded. Yeah. It's too small, um, basically. I mean, it's a protein. It breaks down like any other. Yeah. Right. And and so there haven't really been any ethical questions surrounding eDNA because because why would you couldn't right, use it? Yeah. You couldn't use it. Right. You could use it to generally identify like 
the existence that there was the, a person there. There are people, exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. So over the last decade, what you've been seeing then is a lot of scientists sort of going all in on this environmental DNA technology to do all these various different things mm. um, and refining the process, refining what they could find. And basically you had this, this uh, scientist, Dr. Duffy saying, well, let's actually, let's test this out. Let's see what we can identify of yeah. people. And so he just used readily available technology that, um, that technology that I talked about before the, the thousand dollar nanopore yeah. sequencer. Um, and as a sort of proof of concept of what he was looking for, um, he wanted to test uh, outdoor waterways and then also the air inside of a building to two separate tests to okay. see what All he right. could find. So we got outdoor and indoor. Right, okay. exactly. Okay. And so he basically just took a soda can sized sample of water from a creek in St. Augustine, Florida. Mm, okay. Probably and Spaniards. Gotcha. fed it into a genetic material, uh, fed, fed the sample into the sequencer and was able to generate a snapshot of the genetic ancestry of the population around the creek. That's interesting. That basically, that for the most part, aligned with the racial makeup of like the most recent census hmm. data. Now there is, uh, so, so they're able to identify mitochondrial DNA samples basically yeah. of, of the people who live there. Now there's, there's a few different like caveats, which is that racial identity is identity is not necessarily the same thing as genetic, genetic yeah, of course. ancestry, but they were able to identify DNA from at least a few individuals that was much more specific than he was anticipating. Yeah. Um, he found in one, uh, in, in one sample that it would, it was complete enough to meet the requirements for the federal missing persons database. Oh, uh, and they also found got that those requirements, then that's what that means. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it just, it wasn't degraded nearly as much as he thought that so it, it would been be more recent or something like somebody that. Yeah. just like spat into the river. <laughs> 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 they took a leak and they're like, yeah. that's what this can is. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and and then they also found another person uh, who had they were able to identify in this person's DNA that they had like a key genetic mutation that showed that they were a high risk carrier for diabetes, cardiac issues, and several eye diseases. And and according in to Florida, no. <laughs> um, and and basically, um, the genetic material showed that this person had a mutation that could lead to a rare disease that caused them to pro have progressive neurological impairment that hmm. could be fatal in their future. Sure. For a particular specific individual. Hmm. Interesting. And so it, it's interesting. Does, and do they know the individuals? No, like, okay, like yeah. they don't know. So basically they're just like, there's a person <laughs> near this yeah. creek who uh, has a potentially fatal disease um, and uh, it may not emerge until the person's 40 years old. Hmm. So they could identify a potentially fatal disease in a person that would not show any For signs years. until they were 40 years old. Huh. And the doctor is just like wondering, like, does this person know? Do, do they have a family that would know? Do their insurance right, carriers right. know? Like, yeah, what's yeah. Well, the... that's the least of the worries, but yeah. yeah. To which you say, that is none of your business, Mr. Uh, yeah. Scientist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You just need to hush. Go on about your business. But 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 certainly though, a lot more specific, uh, a lot able to identify a lot more than than you would think. Yeah. From a single can of water. Yeah, and so I think that's really interesting because you know in the 
like that's again very like abstract and mm-hmm. removed from the facility but in the or like removed from like a single place right right but in the um in the movie it's an eyelash from an office building so was there anything about the you said they also captured uh something from the inside of an office building right or like um was there anything more that they picked up from that yeah so so again they were only able to really identify fragments for the most part um in stuff that was collected out out in the wild and and really with environmental dna what you're doing is it it is collecting dna however if you are a dna analyst you are comparing scenes uh, scene samples for a suspect that look at 20 different markers spread across the human genome. Okay. And so the reason that this isn't really viable, that, that scientists didn't really think it was viable is because uh, you are uh, looking at samples that really aren't capable of capturing more than one marker at a time. Okay. And so if you collect DNA samples yeah. from a river, yeah. right, that could come from any number of hundreds of people. Sure, sure. And it can be very yeah. like broken apart. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you have hundreds of single markers mm-hmm. and it's basically just a, this jigsaw puzzle, yep. right? However, what they did find is that in closed spaces, it could be possible uh, where there are fewer, where fewer people have been, it could be possible to uh, identify individuals from that DNA. Hmm. So you're saying... When bosses say, hey, everyone, time to return to the office, back to work, no more working remotely, it's because they want to collect our DNA to adjust their insurance premium costs? <laughs> I mean, I, I wouldn't put it past them. <laughs> uh, so last October, there was a team in Oslo's um, university hospitals uh, that used forensic research to pilot a new technique which recovered human DNA from air samples, just from the air. And they were able to construct full CODIS profiles from airborne DNA that was inside that office. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so basically, even though this was developed for wildlife ecologists, this is something that that potentially law enforcement might try to look to, and at some point in the future sure. to to use for these more closed systems that are not just like all the animals in an area. Yeah, it's interesting. It seems almost like a natural expansion of what happened with like the uh, Golden State Killer, where it's like some person submitted their DNA to Ancestry.com or whatever, mm-hmm. one of those services. And then the FBI was like, let's go ahead and get a look at that and see what we can see oh. if we can piece together. We'll talk about it, but yeah. yeah, your 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 instincts are not wrong, yeah. and we will definitely talk about the Golden State Killer in just in just a minute. But okay. but uh, to to put a pin on it, wildlife ecologists have basically said that this is you know it's still not um, mature enough mm-hmm. as a technology sure. to to be used for forensic science, yeah. but that doesn't stop. Yeah. A lot of forensic scientists. That's right. That's right. Uh, yeah. A lot of the things that people have been arrested on in the past that were quote unquote forensics that you mm-hmm. may see on like an episode of Law and Order mm-hmm. turn out to actually not be very statistically significant. It's just they can well, be a compelling case about it. But anyway, we'll get there. I'm going we'll to get there. Yeah, I'm going to take a break. And the thing I wanted to talk about is the middle act. So middle act of the film, uh, Ethan Hawke is on the run basically from the, the police mm-hmm. and they're closing in, but then they don't catch him, but then they close in, but then they don't yeah, whatever. So it, it's, it's interesting to look at, but what, what also happens at this time is his character falls in love with Uma Thurman's character. Um, and they, so her name is, uh, is Irene and, um, Cassini, I think 
Irene Cassini, which is an interesting name because Cassini is the, the scientists. Mm -hmm. um, well, I mean the the space satellite, which is named took, after. Yes, it's named after the astronomer. Uh, astronomer. And then and Cassini took the um, pictures of the rings of Saturn, mm -hmm. which is where Ethan Hawke's character is going. But right. it's interesting because like they didn't take those pictures until well after this movie, so kind of interesting. But yeah. Um, anyway, the so she um, and, and he and she fall in love, and there's like some really fun stuff where it's like he uh, runs across like an interstate with her basically. And she's like, I can't do things like that. Cause she also has a uh, heart condition. Right. And uh, genetically. And so she can work in the facility, but she can never go to space. And she runs across the street with him. She's like, I can't do things like that. She's like, and he's like, well, you just did, you know? So they, they play on this idea of like what you accept from your expectations and what you fight against him, obviously being the one, fighting against them and trying to teach her to do the same. Um, and I think the the other thing that happens in this period is my favorite part of the movie. Okay. Which is not actually plot related at all. It's not acting related. It is the production value. Like the production design and the costume design of this film are incredible. Um, and they, yes. use, they use a lot of real life places um, in, in the LA area when they shoot. So, um, like many of the futuristic buildings were like actually older buildings that were built in like a brutalist design. Mm -hmm. So they look like they could be uh, futuristic. They're like postmodern architecture, um, that was popular in the fifties and the 1950s, um, including the two massive arches that are behind Jerome and I. That was just a McDonald's. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's like when they're, they're talking, um, uh, they're having a, a big conversation and it's actually the spillway mm -hmm. of the Sepulveda Dam in Los Angeles. And it was built in the thirties. Um, the interiors of the Gattaca building are actually the Marin County Civic Center in San, Ra uh, San Rafael, California, oh, okay. which was designed by Frank Lloyd Wright, famous architect in, in 1957. Mm -hmm. um, it was the largest design that he had ever constructed. Um, and was largely built after he died in 1959. Yeah, this was definitely the one thing that the the film got way off, which is they had this beautiful architecture and beautiful clothing that was from like the 40s. Mm -hmm. And and, uh, and it turns out the future is actually just the parachute pants that I was wearing to go see Gattaca. <laughs> That's right. Uh, at, when the film was released. Yes, yeah. It's like we we actually don't like ever evolve to have really good standards. All we do is we just have one uh, type of apartment that we build and we just put it everywhere. Right. Uma Thurman should be wearing wide leg pants and Ethan Hawke should be in a bucket hat. <laughs> that would be the worst <laughs> possible outcome. Really quickly, um, Cassini, uh, Giovanni Domenico Cassini okay. was an astronomer. And one of the things that he was most famous for is that he discovered four satellites of the planet Saturn mm -hmm. and uh, noted the division of rings of Saturn. So like, I guess his like big thing was Saturn. So it there makes sense okay. that when they create a satellite that's gonna take photos of Saturn, that they it's name it after yeah. the guy who discovered the rings in the first place. And then also if he's going to Saturn, that they name the, the person his love in love interest with is Cassini, that, as yep. an homage to that same astronomer. So there it all just go. goes back to love it. that guy. Great connection. Um, the last thing I'll mention about the this, uh, the production mm -hmm. and like where they shot was the exterior shots of where Ethan Hawke and Jude Law's apartment were or mm -hmm. was. It was actually the quote classrooms, laboratories, and administration building of Cal Poly in Pomona, uh, which has now been demolished. So that doesn't oh. actually exist anymore. But but like all the buildings looked fantastic, and they were all like 
everything was shot in sort of like a film noir style where it's like dark, heavy contrast. Right. But then there was soft lighting on like the faces when it's like, it was old Hollywood style shooting. And so I think a couple of things really played out uh, well there. The direct, uh, the, the um, director of photography, cinematographer was this guy, uh, Slomir Idziak. And I apologize if I'm pronouncing that wrong, mm. uh, but he went on to be an Oscar nominee for cinematography for Black Hawk Down. Okay. Um, and then the production designer was uh, either Jan or Jan uh, Rolfs. It was a... Uh, Probably Jan. Yeah, it's from Amsterdam, so I would assume Jan. Um, who has a varied production design background. Mm-hmm. Um, and I couldn't find anything that was like equally up to snuff as this. But but did do production design for Fast and Furious 6, 9, and 10. <laughs> So, so there's that. Um, and the, But then the costume designer, Colleen Atwood, I think was the one that stuck, stuck out to me most, um, did the costume design for Academy Award winner Best Picture Chicago, mm-hmm. as well as uh, basically all of the Tim Burton films from Edward Scissorhands up until Wednesday, which is on Netflix. Like the, mm-hmm. um, so just has been like in Tim Burton's pocket for, for decades. Um, so that is... Uh, I mean, the costume design is, yeah. is beautiful. It's amazing. It's, it's absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. Um, and then a couple other things, just uh, I'll throw one out for my mom. So Vincent's car mm-hmm. was a 1963 Studebaker Avanti. My okay. mom is a big fan of the Studebaker. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Uma Thurman's character drives a car. It's a, a, a European car called a Citron. It's a DS Cabriolet. So those are like, if you're thinking back in the 90s, like what the future is going to look like, you're thinking... <laughs> 1930s to 1950s architecture Mm -hmm. and you're thinking european vehicles that's kind of where you are it's like uh, it's really interesting it's like everything is uh in the way that you're saying like right now fashion is everything is that's new is from the old times Mm -hmm. like the 2000s well when they made this in the 90s everything new was just from the 50s or the 30s or i mean i think that that's the way to go and i it's who knows? Who knows where fashion and style and, and design is going to go in the future if they're going to try and make it more retro or, yeah. or classic looking? Yeah. Um, because obviously that is actually what's happening now, even though it's the 90s, right? right. That was, even though it doesn't seem retro, it is. Even though yeah. it doesn't seem retro because that was yesterday for us. Yeah. It was 30 years ago. Right. That's true. Yep. You know, it just isn't good. <laughs> it was bad the first time we did it. It's retro. It's yeah. just bad. Yeah. Um, so uh, we'll move on quickly, um, to what actually happens in the film. So they're chasing down Ethan Hawke. The, the detective thinks that he's got him cornered. And then all of a sudden Alan Arkin calls up and says, Hey, yeah, you know, the director of the thing, now that his mission is a go and can't be stopped has just confessed to killing the other guy. Uh, so right. we're all good. Wrap it up. Well, because they never actually, I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of it, right? The, it, what's interesting is Ethan Hawke's character is never actively looking for the person. He's just trying to get off the planet before it's even an issue. Yeah. And, uh, but there is kind of the working assumption the entire time that of course I didn't do it. Yeah. And so you do know that. You actually the, knew he didn't. Yeah. The, that he's the red herring basically yes. for the police officers this entire time. Yeah. And the police officer who's been chasing him down is actually his brother. Right. They make a point of making sure that his brother and he are never really in the same room together. Although he's, I mean, of course, his brother like recognizes him. Sees the picture. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's interesting because they say at one point though, it's like just some invalid that doesn't have any fr- any family yeah. that's living. So what happened to the brother that he's not in the records as being family? That's of this a good guy? question. I don't know, actually. That's a good point. I'd have to go and see if they explained that away. I don't remember yeah. if there was a, a moment where they did. The other thing I would say is um it's funny because they then like once the brother like finds out it's like it's you and it, blah blah blah, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um they they fix this or they they figure it out by swimming again <laughs> they have to close the loop on the swimming thing where right it's like okay and they go swimming and ethan hawk beats him because i mean honestly to this point ethan hawk's been busting his ass training and like running uh on these treadmills mm-hmm. and like doing all these like uh g-force things like to like control and like he's been doing it with a weak heart and like not being you know physically prime mm-hmm. uh but been doing it anyway so dude's like hella strong you know um, yeah, I mean, although they do have him do that one test where he's running at one point and he's just like running for 20 minutes and then he almost like passes out. And I'm mm-hmm. just like, you don't practice running. <laughs> you should practice running. Yeah. It you know, seems a point, like part of your job. There's a point where I'm like, you are going to actually be going into space. You should be better at You're this. You're just going to make these people fly through the solar system with a dead body on yeah. board because you're going to croak. <laughs> because your heart will not take liftoff. Yeah. You will you will hit your 32nd birthday. Yeah. And I did it. Oh, I'm dead now. Now where are they going to keep you? <laughs> just jetsons them out They're going to strap your body back to the outside of the thing until you get back, basically. Just let him go into the, the cold subarctic. Well, this got dark, didn't it? Well, look, he's going to be fine because he makes it onto the thing and he goes away and, and he's, uh, he did it. He, he's going to Saturn. Um, and that's, that's kind of the end of the movie. He, he's been looking at these launches for the entire film and finally he's on one. And that's, right. That's well, so the the director confesses, right? He says that he just wanted this. Yep. He just wanted to see this mission happen. This was the only launch date for the, in his lifetime. That's right. So yeah. he he killed this director guy or whatever because he was standing in the way yep. and potentially going to stop the launch. And turns out the the random eyelash that they found of the the invalid person that was in had the office had nothing to do with it. Had nothing to do with it. It was a faulty assumption. Even though, yeah, they had assumed the whole time that if we just find this person who wasn't supposed to be in here, that had to be the killer right but but it wasn't like turned out it wasn't right which leads us to the question i guess of of ethics yeah and utilizing dna that you just pluck out of thin air Mm -hmm. to prosecute or identify criminals in cases so one thing to note is that again up until this most recent um sort of experiment that was written up in journals about you know, how they were able to find human environmental DNA and pinpoint a lot of very specific things within that DNA. Up until that point, universities and, and scientists really had been just discarding all of this because they didn't think it was going to be that big of a deal. But now all these questions are being raised. Similarly, universities and scientists at those universities are beholden to ethics boards. There are they have to justify the scope and privacy concerns of various studies that they perform. Um, and they have to justify it to these boards at their institutions and they can be rejected based off of whether or not they are ethically, you know, following whatever rules or ethics that the the school lays Mm -hmm. out. Uh, law enforcement does not have those same ethical guardrails, essentially. They are not beholden to really anybody. They, have been known in the past 
to very easily adopt and embrace unproven tools, like using various different kinds of DNA um, for a variety of things that have not been shown by science to necessarily be consistent or accurate or evidence-based mm-hmm. necessarily. Um, and, and so this is potentially a big ethical problem if you tell police officers oh here's a thousand dollar item that you can go purchase yep. plug it into your laptop take a scoop of water or you know whatever you'll, you'll a sample out of killer. the air yeah. and you'll and it, and now you have dna yeah right um there have already i mean we we have a long line of faulty pseudoscientific methods being used in police work to basically convict falsely yeah. people of various different crimes. They still admit eyewitness testimony, even though it is one of the worst forms of like valuable or trusted oh, yeah. evidence. Like, Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and to your point, right, you brought up the, the golden state killer earlier, yep. which was another one of those uh, quote unquote air quotes, creative uses of <laughs> DNA where the officers who found the golden state killer did so by comparing the blood or DNA that they found at one crime scene to DNA that was submitted to uh, to retail DNA sequencing, gene sequencing uh, accounts for yeah. like um, whichever one, yeah, I don't whatever. Remember, but yeah. yeah, it was like an ancestry or twenty three ancestry or, or twenty three. Like yeah, yeah. yeah, basically, right? They just created their own account, ran the DNA sequence in that account. And then found, found a cousin or whatever. Yep, found a, a cousin and then said, hey, by the way, you happen to know a murderer? <laughs> yeah, right? And and so that's how they caught them. But there was no ethics board no. that did this. They basically just announced at a press conference that they had used this technique and they caught a guy. And the only no, reason- he did confess. No, he did confess, yeah. right? But the only reason that they were able to get away with using this technique yeah. was because they had- they had actually caught the guy, right? right? right he right. did make a confession. And so they, you have the goodwill of like the community behind you being like, yeah, you yeah. know, and, and you, you go and you do this thing, but is it ethical was never a question that right. was asked. Yeah, they know, never had to face an ethics board to, to have that approved. There was no law or group that, yep. that approved this method. Yep. And uh, just also to note, the killer was a cop. Yeah, I mean Go, Golden, that's why they were able. A police officer. Yeah, that's why they were able to evade police mm-hmm. for so long. Mm-hmm. And and so you know we have a kind of the wild west here in America when it comes to being able to utilize various different scientific techniques. Pew pew. It's me shooting off guns in the wild west. <laughs> You have places like Germany where in, in Germany, uh, for instance, um, you have a, a, you have to be approved on a green list of technologies that are used for evidence and for law enforcement agencies. So it's kind of the exact opposite, right? There is a pre-approved list yeah. of things that you can use. And if it's not on that list that has already been proven, you don't get to just go find criminals based yeah. off of that. Given their history with eugenics, really bad to be trailing behind Germany in that space. Like yeah. they, they, they were probably, I would argue, one of the worst right. <laughs> at and, that in history. So. Right. And and one of the potential issues also is that we are now relying on the court system mm-hmm. to decide whether or not various different forms of evidence and testimony are, um, quote, resting on a reliable foundation. And 
we don't have a super strong track record of judges being of judges throwing out evidence like judges right, right. at court cases aren't going to be like well i'm going to i'm not going to throw out this evidence right they, they want to use it so they can get convictions you found a person yeah. yeah that's right right um and and so what you then have is you have pro- uh, people like the innocence project who have been working for for basically just decades to to kind of remove, identify and remove the pseudosciences from court mm-hmm. being admissible in court. Mm-hmm. To close out the film mm-hmm. is that it, it originally did have an uh, a different ending. Oh, so okay. it originally featured images of Albert Einstein, Abraham Lincoln, and John F. Kennedy, and more. Um, and there was a statement that stated, I guess it was probably title cards, that said, if genetic screening had existed in their lifetimes, they would never have been born. Each photo came with a caption of what their genetic flaws were. For example, Einstein had dyslexia, Lincoln had Marfan syndrome, and Kennedy had Addison's disease. Um, It ended with stating that you, the viewer, wouldn't have existed either. Um, That ending was cut because apparently test audiences were uncomfortable (laughs) with the suggestion that they were genetically inferior. So, you know. I I mean, it's not wrong. That's the whole point of the film. It's not wrong. and, And I would also say, like, I wouldn't have cut it because the movie didn't do well in, in, at the box office. So, like, you might as well just go with what you wanted to go the with. The movie didn't do well at the box office? No. It was a $36 million budget. It made $12 million in theaters. What? Yeah. It debuted fifth. Would you like to know some other films that were ahead of it on the weekend that it debuted? <laughs> yeah, let's hear it. Do you want to do the box office game? So, we what? don't, for those of you who are listening, there's a uh, podcast called Blank Check with yeah. Griffin and David. It's lovely. They do a box office game. There's a online version of this game you can play. Um, this, Which we play, uh, play sem- semi regularly. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So, what, this, was the, what was the year? In- uh, October 24th, 1997. Okay. First, number one. Uh-huh. Uh huh. This is a, a sort of trite horror film, um, slasher film. Not, not. I know that, what you did last summer. Bingo. Okay. Got it. I know what you did last summer. Okay. Number two. Uh, this is a an, another sort of horror thriller, um, but this one is biblical in nature. And um, try not to give it away. But what's the um, what's the studio? Oh gosh, I have no idea what the studio oh, is. Oh, okay. Uh, I mean, probably Miramax. Um, it's got a, a an actor who is very big in his personality. Is it Bruce Almighty? No. That was is, later. It is a thriller horror horror film, not a comedy. Oh. oh. Um a it involves film. Oh, it's um got someone doing a very bad southern accent. Um who, Is it seven? No, although good good guess. Twelve um, monkeys? Uh no. Um <laughs> so it's got a, an actor who likes to he goes like and yells a lot. Um Oh, the devil's advocate? There it is. Yep. Uh okay. Number Three, you're probably not going to get. It's a, a based off of a, I think, James Patterson novel. Stars Morgan Freeman and is about all a, the pretty girls. Close. Um, it's Kiss the Girls. Kiss the Girls. Um, and Angelina then, Jolie. I think, I think. I think she's in that. I don't remember. No, no she's Ashley in Bone Judd. Collector. Ashley Judd. That's right. And Morgan Freeman. Yeah. Um, and then the f- number four is a movie starring a very attractive gentleman in 1997. Uh, but it is an incredibly boring movie that takes place over a long number of... Seven years into bed? There it is. <laughs> That's right. Good job. Um, <laughs> all four of those movies uh, were in either their second, third, or fourth week of release. Yeah. And they all beat Gattaca. Wow. Yeah, Gattaca opened like four and a half million or something like that. 
Um, the other movie, so another movie that that was out this week that ended up beating it in terms of overall gross. Mm-hmm. Gattaca was at twelve million. This movie was at five million. Is a movie called Disney's Rocket Man with the lead actor Harlan Williams. Oh, oh, I thought the lead actor was the guy from uh, Titanic. Oh, DiCaprio? Zane. Billy Zane. Oh, Billy Zane. No, that's uh, the Phantom. Yeah, but I think I thought that he was in this one, too. Okay. So it's it's literally, it stars Harlan William and a chimpanzee. And oh, it made, okay, no. And, and it made more is. money than... <laughs> so, and it's also about going to space, obviously. Right. And it made more money than this movie, which is about going to space. And by the way, a movie that NASA apparently voted, and I don't know where this vote was tabulated, but according to IMDb, it was voted by NASA scientists the most accurate science fiction film ever made. It feels pretty accurate in a lot of the things that we've been talking about. Yeah. It's not surprising. It's weird. It's weird. I think I have an outsized view of how important this film is because they it was something that was talked about, I think, in a lot of my college philosophy mm, classes. Sure. Yep. Yep. It's it had an extended life on you know uh, DVD, Blu-ray, etc. It was one of those films that like again I didn't see it in theaters. I saw it when a friend of mine in Atlanta was like, "This is a good movie. You should see this." <laughs> like so, I did. Yeah, I think it's just it's shocking that it, it did so poorly because it's such a good film. Yeah, I agree. Um, so we can get into to reviews if you want, just briefly. Mm-hmm. Um, so on Rotten Tomatoes, the film received an approval rating of eighty-two percent. Um, an average rating of 7.1 out of 10. Roger Ebert stated, this is one of the smartest and most provocative of science fiction films, a thriller with ideas. So Ebert loved it. It was great. It also um, was nominated for the Academy Award for Art Direction. I'm not going to get through all of the uh, the awards that it was nominated for in terms of like different groups, mm-hmm. but it was like excellence in production design, best original score, best dramatic presentation, uh, screenwriting got a nomination, art direction, costume, music, etc. So it's like it's all like the fact that this movie is just a cool looking movie. <laughs> right. Know? It's a film. Yeah. And then the the last thing I'll mention is we can talk a little bit about the ne- the sort of like bad side of this movie. Oh. Uh, so U.S. Senator Rand Paul Blech. used a near verbatim portion of the plot summary of this film from Wikipedia uh, and in a speech at Liberty University in support of then Attorney General of Virginia's Ken Cuccinelli's campaign for governor, uh, Paul saying that abortion rights advocates are advancing eugenics in a manner similar to the events of Gattaca. So he says that people want to have abortions so that they don't have kids who are not perfect and then they can create their own perfect society or whatever. Which is, of course, bullshit, but... The fact that this man has an, is a doctor, again, similar to... Just the fact that, the, like, it just... I'm like, oh, so you don't have to be very smart to be a doctor. <laughs> you yeah. can just be an ophthalmologist. Oh, like Ben Carson. Be, like the, yeah, the like world's ben greatest Carson. brain surgeon, but right. also the dumbest like, human. You can just also not be very smart. Yeah, you can you can be book smart, I guess, and pass all the tests that you need to pass, and then also just be a tremendous dummy, right? In other ways, it just the analogy is also not is not there. That's not why people get abortions. Right? They're not saying, "Oh, I don't have the perfect child." Right? Guess I'll try again. 
Right. I don't, I just can't. I just, yeah. I need Rand Paul to go jump into the ocean. Yeah. And just for like statistics on this, like 90% of abortions occur before the time in which you could even have genetic testing. So just just for anybody out there listening who wants a little talking point or needs to just have this clarified, like Rand Paul's a piece of shit. He's making things up and he's doing it because he can use some popular culture to like rally, rally to his point. But again, nobody saw this movie, so I don't know that, that made any difference. I bet he showed up at Liberty University in 2013 or whatever. And I was like, it's like the movie Gattaca. And everybody was like, <laughs> the fuck are you talking about? What, what movie is this? Just remember, Rand, that no one saw this film. No one has seen this movie. It's also not available on streaming. I'm sorry for everyone who's listened to this podcast. All right. So close us out with uh, Fourth Amendment. Sure. I mean, OK. So uh, again, we're just we're talking about ethics, I guess. Also, yeah, continuing yeah, yeah. our talk about ethics, um, and and the Fourth Amendment is the one that says that uh, there's no unreasonable searches or seizures. Yep. Right. That um, there's they're not people are not allowed to just like uh, go into your house and 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 search <laughs> for Jude Law. <laughs> you can't just like go in and say, "Hey, do you have any hot?" Uh, hot take me British to your boyfriend's. Yeah. Take me to your boyfriend's house <laughs> now, please. Yeah. Um, and. Unfortunately, with regards to DNA, since the early 2000s, uh, prosecutors, judges basically have have taken the stance that DNA is that's not still attached to a person is basically just considered abandoned. Mm, interesting. There, you don't have any right to privacy to a hair that's found in a crime discard. scene. Yeah, yeah, not if you discard it, but if it's just no longer attached right, to your right. body. Right. Huh. You you got your hair cut at a place and your hair was found in the dumpster. That does that hair does not belong to you anymore. Yeah. According to the the way that our legal system has operated for the last Yeah. Know, it's interesting years. and I kind of understand why they would take that position where it's like if you leave a fingerprint on a doorknob, you're not entitled to your fingerprint, you know. Right. I mean, I understand that to a degree. Uh, the fingerprint though is like disturbing a crime scene whereas dna is like leaving behind a piece of yourself right the the problem with this though is that according to this doctor and his colleagues um they could successfully collect airborne human dna from people who were wearing gloves and surgical masks and gowns huh there is no way there's no amount of scrubbing under a black light right. that is going take that away to yeah. stop your edna from from showing up in various different yeah. places. It's also like, you know, I'm sure that like, okay, the way that murders happen, like let's just assume you're using this to solve a murder, like in the film. Right. Like most murders um, happen by people that you already know, right? Like, or like people who are, you know, in your circle that you meet right. regularly, right? Like most, like if, if one of us were killed, then the person who would be on the hook for like, like the the police right. would be the other one of us. Like that's the person who they start with, right? Remember and that. I, yeah, of course. <laughs> but like also our DNA is all over the places that we are, right? Like there's no getting around that. Right. Um, and it's like, or like maybe there's DNA from like friends and family who come over to the house. Like you're just going to get the things that are around the people that you're around, you know? Correct. Correct. Um, but I think more importantly, it's just the, the question is if you can collect samples of dna from the air yeah right then this is not something that i'm just like 
accidentally leaving. I didn't, it's not that I was negligent in scrubbing my body of skin cells that day, right? I'm literally just existing in the world. And by existing in the world, I could become a suspect. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you can just take things off of me. So like, where is the, where is the line then in terms of, um, again, uh, saying like, uh, can I search your phone? No, but I can just come over here and uh, pick up your DNA. Yeah, scoop your skin cells out of the air, right? Um, now, the final thing that I will note that is a potential like really scary thing about this is that we talked about how really you can identify people at a population level. This could be used to identify, persecute, um, harm populations of ethnicities. Yeah, sure. So for instance... China, the Uyghurs, Tibetans are ethnically, you know, different populations that are already being persecuted. And so this is technology that could potentially be used by the Chinese government to just off of wastewater. Right track whether or not there are like there are these groups of those populations minorities in a given area that they shouldn't be. Yeah, that is pretty terrifying. Right. Cool. Well, what a, what a wonderful place to end this podcast. So there you go. Yeah. And then Gattaca, A-T-G-C, <laughs> those are all the letters in uh, the DNA proteins. It took me all the way to the final credit scenes where they had the the names of the actors scrolling and, and the and A's and the were, T's yeah. and the G's and the C's were were like, like a red color yeah, and everything yeah, else yeah, was black. Yeah. And, I, and I was like... And, and I think you said, like, or maybe I was like, oh, those are for DNA. And then I just had a moment where I just said, oh, <laughs> Gattaca's yeah. all made from those. Adenine, thionine, cytosine, guanine. Yeah. So they are, um, it, the Gattaca is not a word. Like it's not a real thing. They just, they created a word out of those, uh, those letters for the movie. So your movie was originally going to be titled The Eighth Day. Um, but there was apparently another movie that came out, uh, with that title, but the eighth day is, is in reference to, you know, like on the seventh day he rested and the then on the eighth day, day rested, and then on the eighth day, uh, I guess man took over. That's right. Yeah. It was, it was the idea. Um, and, and the tampering of man with what God had already made was what happened after creation. So, you know, a little biblical allegory. There's a lot of like, you know, subtle references to like creationism and, and the yeah the that focus but we have gone on very long uh we're we're ready to wind this down so thank you everyone for listening to this episode please remember to rate review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts that's right you can follow us on twitter we are at the crosscut we are also on instagram at the crosscut pod and uh thank you everybody for for listening uh feel free to go find us in whatever podcast app you're listening do, to do we have another movie plan for Already, like we have one more. What's the next? What's the last one? I forgot. Robocop. Robocop. Oh, the greatest movie ever made. I'm so excited. Okay, we're gonna do Robocop. It's gonna be amazing. I have so much to say. It's gonna be a three hour long episode. I'm sorry. All right, bye everybody. Love you. Bye.